I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. Parents are human beings. They can't be gods. Which is like jumping into the Grand Canyon of language. Tragedy struck her and she realized, well, this is not who I want to be. The next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. We are in the midst of prize season in the book world. There's lots to talk about in our office, and maybe yours, about who and which title made it to what list and what's missing too. Prize juries are made up of people who, like all of us, have opinions and tastes that are all their own, and they make choices readers may or may not agree with. It's a lot of work to be on a jury. And I've heard of stories of flatbed trucks pulling up at a juror's house and dumping a load of books on the lawn. Okay, that's not true, but gosh, it would be exciting. It is an enormous amount of work, and our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick, has been burning the midnight oil these days, reading his way through prize lists. He closes today's program with a rundown of the five books in contention for the 2023 Giller Prize, which will be awarded this Monday. Also today on the program, Ryan's conversation with Claudia Day about her probing psychological novel, Daughter. Besides the daughter of the title, there's one doozy of a father as well. That's in a half an hour. But first, past meets present in Karma Brown's new novel, What Wild Women Do. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. The women's movement of the 70s was transformative. Karma Brown's new novel, What Wild Women Do, brings us back to that time of ferment and change. We enter the world of a feminist crusader who opens a camp dedicated to women finding their wild within. When she disappears one day and is never heard from again, the camp is abandoned and the project lost to history. That is, until a present-day young woman discovers the derelict camp and is drawn into its story and that of the crusading woman who created it. Karma Brown, the author of What Wild Women Do, joins me now in studio to tell us about her new novel. Hi, Karma. Welcome back to the next chapter. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. As it exists on the page, I found Camp Calloway to be a pretty amazing place. It's run (laughs) by a woman named Eddie Calloway, who was heir to a large fortune. Can you take us to this place and what you drew on when you were writing on it? I can. And I visited the Adirondacks and a camp called Camp Sagamore when I was a child. Mm. And these great camps of the Adirondacks were sort of like summer destinations for the gilded rich people of like the early 1900s. And the thing about this camp that I visited, so it was the Vanderbilt camp. Camp Sagamore used to belong to the Vanderbilts and we stayed in Gloria Vanderbilt cabin. So it was, it had this sort of air of sort of celebrity and mystique, but it's in the most beautiful setting, in the middle of the woods, Mm. on a gorgeous lake. And it was just a really peaceful, fun place to be. And so when I was thinking about where I wanted to set my book, 
I love to put my characters in really isolated settings because it creates a lot more conflict when you're really forced to deal with your own feelings and what's going on in that, you know, small microcosm of your life. And I just thought, you know, that is the perfect setting, just being surrounded by the woods where, you know, things can happen and things can go missing and secrets can be kept. Mm. As a young person, I lived in Montreal and we would go to upstate New York a fair amount. Mm. And I remember all these like camp this, camp that, next exit is camp this, but instead we would just have a tent in like a field. <laughs> and I remember being, what are all these camps about? I want to know more about those I know. camps. You... There, well, you know what? To be honest, we did also have tents in fields as we made our way down there. And luckily one of these camp owners was, well, not an owner, but a caretaker, was a close friend of my parents. And so that's how we managed to get to one of these mm -hmm. camps. And you can still go. They are still open for people to come and stay. They're very low tech. You're, you can still go and get lost in nature and enjoy sort of that rustic getaway. Let's talk about Eddie. Eddie's a great character. She's dedicated to helping other women get as comfortable in their own skins as she is. But the most interesting thing, I think, is that she wasn't always this person she used to be. You know, her, her birth name was Edith, and nothing can be more different than the names Edith and Eddie. Uh, one mm -hmm. really harking back to the past and one more, you know, sort of casual and, 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 and fun and, and you know, with this sense of wildness. Eddie is her, her current incarnation. So tell us, who was Edith? Well, Edith was a socialite, a very wealthy family. And she was one of those women who just had such great privilege and grew up not really having to ask for anything because everything was always provided. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't expectations placed on her because of her station in life and, and what she was supposed to do, which was to also marry well and then have children and continue on with this life, you know, do her socialite type activities, volunteering and, and being present in that world. But she needed to leave it. I mean, this is who she was. And then a tragedy struck her and she realized, well, this is not who I want to be. And so really for Eddie, her transformation came when she came to the understanding that we have this one life. We have one life to live. And is this how I want to be living my life? And the answer for her was no. So she left all of that behind and moved to Camp Calloway and started running these wild women weekends and sort of like having that next iteration of what um, her life would look like as Eddie Calloway. Hmm. The 70s were obviously a time of great social change and I had visions of Gloria Steinem with the tinted glasses, women <laughs> marching, sitting in as I yeah. was reading this. You were a, a baby, a child of the 70s. What got you interested in this time period? You know, for me as a child, because I wasn't actually um, involved in any of the feminist movement stuff that was going on because I was far too young. But it was a very idyllic time to be a kid. First of all, there was no social media or internet or anything like that. And so we were able to spend a lot of time outside with our friends, with our communities. And my parents were hippies. So we lived on a farm and my mom, you know, grew marijuana between the sunflowers. And, mm. and I really had that very peaceful, fun, joyful childhood. And I think now, you know, I, I struggle so much with social media and I have a teenager and I worry about that all the time. And I just, I wanted to go back 
to a time where that didn't exist. And it was an opportunity to sort of revisit some of the, the quiet that you can find in your mind when you are not on 24 seven or being mm. pinged 24 seven. So that's what appealed to me about that era. And also because it was the second wave of feminism and a lot of what Eddie is going through and, and participating in and being challenged by was happening at that time. I mentioned in the intro that it's a it's a present day young woman who discovers the uh, abandoned, uh, long lost camp that Eddie started. And your present day protagonist is Rowan. She's thirty. She's an aspiring screenwriter, engaged to Seth, who is working hard at his YouTube channel and wants <laughs> Rowan to do it with him. Uh, how does Rowan feel about that creatively? Rowan does not feel good about the YouTube piece because. Seth is also a novelist and has his MFA and is, they've gone to the Adirondacks so that he has this opportunity for this month. You know, they're both working on creative projects, but it's really to help him finish his book. And he is more enamored with YouTube and with creating content and sort of pulling her into that so that they do all these couples videos. And she really feels like it is sapping the creative energy, not only from him, but also from her and doesn't want any part of it, but is stuck in this also, you know, trying to be in a relationship and, and look at what their future looks like. So, you know, she doesn't want to do it, but she also wants him to be happy and mm. wants them to be successful. So I, she's in a bit of a conundrum there. Yeah. I have to say that you you lured me in because of this in, in particular. You know, I struggle with this exact same thing. And then there's also this element of, you know, he's he's sort of saying it, this is for now. I'm doing the, the YouTube stuff mm -hmm. for now. And, and, you know, I know from some experience as well, writing books, screenplays, very difficult work, <laughs> as opposed to YouTube, which has instant feedback and all yeah. these viewers. And, of course, that's, you know, can be very seductive to a, a young creative. What do you think about it, Karma, and, as somebody who's done that hard, lonely work of writing novels? Well, I think that it is hard and lonely and long. And, you know, you don't get any sort of instant feedback. And sometimes you never really get feedback or the feedback that you want. And so I can understand the appeal of that. You know, if you are someone who desires that sort of attention, which Seth is, I can see how that would be really compelling to want to be in that space to want to be creating content and to tell yourself that it's filling that creative bucket for you. And I'm certain that there are a lot of people who are getting exactly what they need creatively out of this, but for Seth and Rowan and for me, you know, I put myself in that situation as I was writing it, there's no long-standing benefit to that from what I can see. You know, it's sort of like here and then it's gone. And you get your applause and then it's gone. And then you're just chasing it. You're chasing it day after day after day and video after video to see if you can bump those numbers up. And I don't know, at some point, is it still genuine? You know, are we really seeing who those people are? Um, is it all faked? Like, it's hard to know. I did enjoy also, uh, you know, where we, we come from the same era and there was a, a fun element of going back into the past reading about some of these 70s artifacts that you've included in the novel, Nestle, <laughs> Nestle Quick. Yeah. The fact that, you know, the kids won't know how clumpy that, how impossible that was oh, to uh, to stir into milk. Um, yeah. You were mentioning, you know, 
uh, upside down pineapple cake. I was getting a real Betty Crocker vibe. My mother's sort of um, <laughs> roots here in Canada. And one of the one of the things that I did not know about is a diet that one of the campers subjected herself to, which was the wine and egg diet. What was that? Well, yeah, it was this diet, and you'll have to excuse me. I cannot remember the name of the actual person who did it. I don't have it in front of me. But it was a diet where they were to consume basically eggs and wine, and then I think that you got steak every now and then. It was like this three-day diet, and that was all that you ate, and it was meant to help you lose weight. And so in the book, Eddie, as when she was younger, would do this diet in order to try to you know, keep her weight down. And, and it, it's such a ridiculous thing to imagine that drinking wine, you know, at lunch with your egg or for breakfast with your egg is any sort of diet plan. But these were these were different times. Eddie's husband does leave her. I don't want to suggest that that's because of the wine and egg diet, but um, it might <laughs> It might be connected. No, uh, but it might have something to do with maybe, it. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I can't imagine that's a pleasant person to be around for too long. But Eddie does generally have some tough times in her life. Her husband's departure, and of course, you mentioned the tragedy that we we won't uh, talk about until people mm-hmm. read it themselves. And that happens to her at at, at midlife. What did you want to say about women at, at the midpoint of their lives? Well, I think that, you know, midlife is this really strange time, not just for women, but I did focus on women for this book. You're raising children, you have aging parents, you have been doing the same sorts of things for some time. And then there is always this question, like once your kids gain independence or you get a little more freedom back in your own life, there's this question of like, okay, what now? You know, is there supposed to be something more? If I'm at this halfway point and I have this runway ahead of me, I mean, do I really want to keep doing this Groundhog Day type of thing until the end? And I mean, I don't want to do that. I'm endlessly looking at what are things that I'm curious about and interested in and how can I shift to be able to explore those if I'm ready to take that opportunity. But it is really hard to do that because you can get so stuck. And I do think that women are also, you know, it's almost like the more age experience we get, the older we get, the more we're ignored or dismissed for that experience. And which is so unfortunate uh, because there is so much wisdom and experience there. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to incorporate some of those elements into, into Eddie for sure. There's another element, too. You have a villain in the book, uh, a Camp Calloway neighbor, a man named Victor, who really, really hates the camp and the women who go there. Tell me why this man was an important character. He's so filled with hate and and, and what's Mm. going on at the camp. Well, we always need a villain in our fiction, Mm -hmm. right? Of course. Of course. So that's the part that he got to play. But I also, you know, he is representing a lot of the uh, feelings of that time in terms of the misogynistic sort of views that were held, that were held over from, you know, the decades before. And so that was an important conflict that I needed in that story for Eddie, because she's running this camp, she's trying different things, she's being bold and brave about what she's doing and doesn't care what anyone else thinks about it which is a pretty serious stance to take at that time 
especially for her, um, surrounded by these other camp owners who are all men, of course, and uh, have these histories of, you know, either having um, old money or whatever it is. They have their views about women and men and what women and men should be doing at that time. So he just is there to provide us that counterbalance to what Eddie's doing and to represent, you know, really to represent the patriarchy in the 1970s. Yeah. In the 70s, there are some very uniquely 70s things happening. But Rowan, the contemporary protagonist, discovers the Wild Woman Handbook that was written back Mm -hmm. then by Eddie. What kind of inspiration does she take from it? Uh, She's very curious about it. She is, I mean, she becomes increasingly sort of obsessed with Eddie Calloway and who she was and what she was doing. And this handbook is written in a way where Eddie is imparting wisdom. Um, She's also flawed. And so she's not pretending to know, you know, the answers to anything. She's just trying to encourage women to think about their lives, to think about what they want, to think about finding agency in their lives. And for Rowan, it starts to sink in to her that is she actually doing those things? Is she living this life according to what's important to her and where her priorities are? And so the handbook is really Eddie's way into Rowan's life and for Rowan to see what Eddie was doing and why it still matters. Karma, you said that you write books featuring women who've survived the hardest moments of their lives. Where does that impulse come from? Well, I mean, I've talked about this a lot, but when I was 30, I was diagnosed with cancer and it has been 20 years now and I am well and have come through that. And so, you know, I think that I really appreciate writing stories about women who are not only surviving, but thriving through the different seasons of their life and and the really difficult seasons of their life. And it's just, it's sort of my North Star, I guess, in my stories. I feel really compelled by that idea, obviously from my personal experience, but also I just, I'm just so curious about it for other women. And that extends to my characters. I'm always very curious about how my characters are going to thrive. Uh, No matter what has happened in their life, how they're going to come out the other side. Mm Mm-hmm. You do something in this book that you did in Recipe for a Perfect Wife as well, your your previous best-selling novel. You use these two time frames, and mm-hmm. that you, you know, and you show in some ways that everything stays the same, but everything changes as well. You know, misogyny is still there, and certain things are, are different. There's a yeah. freedom that was you know, I found that very interesting. How do you see the two time periods informing each other? Well, I mean, I in what's interesting about this book, I didn't do this with Recipe for a Perfect Wife, but I wrote Rowan's timeline all the way through, and then I went back and wrote Eddie's timeline. And they each had their own stories. They had their own trajectory and their own arcs, but they really are in conversation with one another. And having these sort of remnants of Eddie in this camp are really what allow Rowan to explore her own life and her own choices and where she may want to go next. And so that was just my goal, like to link the stories together. They're their own separate stories and their own separate characters and they never meet, uh, but they will be in conversation with one another. And, you know, really Eddie is serving as a mentor in many ways to Rowan 
through that handbook and through some of the other things that Rowan ends up learning. And I love the, you know, the theme of women mentoring other women, particularly women who are in that next phase of life, that sort of, you know, in those sunset years, being able to mentor younger women, I think is just a really uh, beautiful theme. So I like to put that in my stories. Mm. Thank you so much, Karma. Thank you so much. Carver Brown is the author of What Wild Women Do, and she spoke with me in Toronto. The actor and playwright R.H. Thompson has a lifelong interest in the legacy of war. It moved from a romantic childhood fascination to an adult realization of its terrible toll. There's a war legacy in his own family. Eight of his great uncles fought in the First World War. And R.H. has written a book that is a tribute to family history and an exploration of war's far-reaching consequences. The book is called By the Ghost Light, Wars, Memory, and Families. Here is R.H. Thompson answering the Proust questionnaire. Name your favorite writers. I live in a world of amazing writers. They have worked their instincts into my kind of imaginative expectations for a long time. I didn't read much as a kid or read adventure stories, but the first play, Canadian play I did, was The Collected Works of Billy the Kid by Michael Andachi, which is like jumping into the Grand Canyon of language. So I'm surrounded by fantastic writers. If you could change something about yourself, what would it be? I would say my sense of being perpetually inhabited by my six-year-old self, who is making emotional reactions to things that I don't think are no longer appropriate since I'm no longer six years old. So if I could change that, I would say to the six-year-old of myself, enough, you're done, your time has passed, let go. But that hasn't happened yet. What do you value most in your friends? That we don't abandon each other on the long journey that we have taken together. My friends are people in my life who we have been through the rough times and the good times and we've tried to climb mountains whether theatrical mountains or literal mountains that long journey with my friends is something that i value the most i hate it when i lose a friend and i did lose a friend in, in ralph thomas who was a great writer and our ways parted in a very uncomfortable way and and i really i really hate that but my other friends it's like a company, it's like a band of players and you still survive. I mean, I'm looking at two young producers in the booth here and they will gather their friends about them as they go and they will be 50 or 60 and they will look at their cohorts and that's valuable. What is your greatest regret? My greatest regret is not acknowledging really important people or substantial people who were in my life early on and I just didn't get it. I didn't get who was standing beside me. I didn't get that relative. My godmother, Mary uh, Margaret Kilmaster, was a World War I nurse. I just didn't, I knew her maybe till I was about 12 or 14 and then she died, but I didn't get her. I didn't acknowledge her. And she was an amazing person. And many people say that, you know, by the time I realized it was time to ask these questions of my relatives, I was too old and they were dead. That's the regret. What is your favorite occupation? being part of a great story. I said to my agent recently, um, you know, you get older, you don't get that much work anymore. Getting work 
At the end of your career is just as difficult as getting work at the beginning of your career. There's kind of a mirror there. But the only thing I like doing, whether in theater or film or TV or books, is being part of a great journey. And if the journey is shallow or the journey is uh, hackneyed or the journey is, oh, right, okay, here we go. Here's another episodic television episode and we all know where we're going. And we know the heroes are because their hair is brushed and their teeth are perfect and their skin is nice. Don't take me on that journey, please. Um, it's like a story in 1.5 dimensions. What do you regard as the lowest depth of misery? lowest depth of misery is being a witness to the intense inhumanity that we can exert on one another. It is looking at the footage we saw, cell phone footage, I believe, of the young Israeli woman with a purple scarf in the safe house um, who was fearing for her life, and indeed, she was, in fact, murdered. It is looking at the tears in the Palestinian father who he is burying three or four of his children uh, in Gaza. The misery in the darkness at the bottom of what humanity will do is intense. And that's my lowest point. What is your greatest fear? My greatest fear is the incoming and seemingly unstoppable climate crisis and what that is going to do to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. Who are your favorite heroes in real life? I find the term hero loaded. I find it carries baggage. Uh, I call it verbal statuary. But again, I go back to the people who broke boundaries, who went through kind of slipstreams of bravery to make things happen. And that can be uh, Greta Thunberg, and that it could be Malala Yosasai, or that could be uh, Maria Reza, uh, the journalist, the Filipino journalist who won the Nobel Prize, or that would be Edward Snowden. Um, these are extraordinary figures who take extraordinary risks to pursue being responsible human beings. What is your greatest extravagance? Maple syrup, olive oil, and single malt whiskey. What is your greatest achievement? Um, my marriage has survived. Thank you, Laurie. Um, I think when someone comes up to the me in the street, and it doesn't happen often, someone comes up to me in the street and said, I saw that show you did in whatever, 1988 or 1994. And they say, I've never forgotten that play. And I've never forgotten what happened to me in that play. And when I experienced the story you were telling on stage, and that changed me, and I did this, or I that, or I decided to pursue this in my life or that in my life. Very seldom does that happen. But when it does happen, I think, okay, I have been able to add a drop to the ocean of storytelling and consciousness. That was R.H. Thompson answering the next chapter's version of the Proust Questionnaire. His new book is By the Ghost Light, Wars, Memory, and Families. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I'm, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
Hi, I'm Tom Rackman, the author of The Imposters, and you are listening to The Next Chapter on CBC Radio 1. I'm joined now by my pal Ryan B. Patrick. We share airtime on this show, and today we get to share some studio time. Hello, Ryan. Hey, Ali. How's it going? Ryan, you're here to set up an interview that you did with Claudia Day about her latest book, Daughter. All I know about it so far is that there is a father involved, too. So I've got some reading to do. Can I you think s- you're correct there. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm a part of the way there. Can you set up your chat with Claudia Day? Yeah, so Claudia Day is back. Um, she's the author of Stunt and Heartbreaker. She's back with a new novel. It's called Daughter. So I'm a girl dad. Uh, I'm, I believe you're a girl dad as Double. well. Two times uh, over. Yeah, so this novel had me thinking about the innate power that I have being a father to a daughter and how important that trust, that bond is to the well-being of a parent and a child. Like, you literally created this person and now you're responsible for them, for their emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being. So it's like no pressure, you know what I mean? So that's what had me thinking. And there's a line in this book that goes, to be loved by your father is to be loved by God. And that's a line that is actually the opening line of the play, uh, the fictional play written by Mona. She's the protagonist of the story. She's a playwright, and she's caught up in this epically uh, disastrous, dynamic kind of relationship with her father. Her father is like a toxic narcissist. He's a kind of a bit of a flake. He's a tortured writer with like a string of failed relationships behind him. He confides in and manipulates his daughter. So, But what's really interesting about this story is that on top of the lies and the secrets and betrayals, it is essentially looks at what it means to be a complicated woman, forever connected to the complicated man that you happen to call your father. So I had a very deep chat with Claudia about this, and it's an incredibly deep novel. I am happy to say that none of the characteristics you you attributed to the father really do apply to me, so that's wonderful, (laughs) but they do fascinate me, and that's very interesting. Um, Here now is Claudia Day in conversation with Ryan B. Patrick. So the title of the book is Daughter, uh, which is a loaded word in many respects. Um, (laughs) It cuts right to the heart of this book, Mm. what it means to be one, what it can mean to have one. What possibilities did you see in exploring this kind of complex relationship and dynamic? Well, I love the idea that a title is like a talisman. It's like this bright, shimmering object that leads the reader into the novel. Mm. And as you said, it's a volatile word. And of course, daughter is such a universal role. In my mind, I didn't dedicate this novel to anyone, but it's truly dedicated to all of the daughters Mm. out there. And I just think it's such an interesting dynamic, the father-daughter dynamic, and I think it's really underexplored in literature, so I wanted to get right into the guts of it. For sure. So maybe in terms of setting the stage, maybe you can give me the elevator pitch of sorts. (laughs) What is Daughter all about? It's a father-daughter novel. The father is Paul Dean, famous for one novel titled Daughter. The daughter is Mona Dean. She's an actress and she's a playwright. And when we first encounter Mona, she is on the ascension path. She is a young artist and she's on her way up. And then her father re-enters her life and he is the great disruptor. And they essentially enter this 
a relationship that mirrors like a bad romance. Mm-hmm. So Mona is the daughter of the title. They're both like artists, creatives, mm-hmm. writers. What role did her father have in terms of uh, her growing up in her choice of profession? Ooh, that's such a great question. Probably an incidental role. He left Mona's family when Mona was 12, and so she really was raised by her mother, Natasha. She has an older sister, Juliet. I think Paul's influence was probably a negative influence. And, you know, while I talk about their relationship, which is certainly competitive, it is fraught, it is oppositional, it is parasitic, uh, it is suffused with love. Mm. And while the expressions of love might be broken, might be very confused, and might be very self-serving, it is there and it is the thing that motors the book. And so I think Paul's influence, when I say it's a negative influence, I think it's that he's incredibly famous. So he is constantly pulling focus for Mona. He's constantly overshadowing her. But when he comes to Mona... And he suddenly needs her after all these years of having this anti-magnetic relationship. She's suddenly the center of his life. Her art just starts to happen. She just starts to write. And so the parasitic relationship works both ways. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. feed each other. So it's really as she's coming into an artist and he's present in her life that it starts to happen for her. I find their dynamics so interesting, even from the sense of um, Mona calling Paul by his name. (laughs) Like, I've come from a a culture just a dynamic. It's like, even as a grown man, I'm like, hey, mom. Hello, mom. Hello, father, kind of thing. But it's like, hey, Paul. It's just this weird kind of dynamic. And it's like, Paul Dean is such an interesting character. It's like, Mm. so codependent. You mentioned Mm. parasitic Mm -hmm. in in many respects. And I'm thinking as a father myself, it's like, get it together, sir. It's like, (laughs) do you not see the damage that you're causing Mm -hmm. by way of the relationship that you have with your children? Like, How self-aware or empathic do you think Paul is? It's a great question. And this is, I think, precisely why I loved writing Paul. Mm -hmm. Like, does Paul have all the power or no power at all? It's difficult to decipher because I do think that he's such a manipulator, but at the same time, he's so manipulated. And so in constructing him, I really looked at like all the kind of sultry men of the canon, you know, the patriarchal canon, like the Sam Shepherds and the Leonard Cohens and the Norman Mailers and the Philip Roths and created this kind of composite character of Paul. I felt that the father character is under-examined. We really save our scrutiny for mothers. And so I really wanted to get into like the very, very confused heart of this man. Mm -hmm. And so no, I don't know how self-aware he is. I I truly don't. Like he's still in that way, remains a mystery to me. And I think that that's why I loved getting inside his mind so much. Mm -hmm. I I think this seems like a theme that you keep going back to, whether Mm -hmm. it be your book Stunt or or Mm -hmm. Heartbreaker, just Mm -hmm. that kind of interpersonal dynamics between parents and and children. Mm -hmm. Like what drives you to create these kind of stories and what do you hope readers will take away from it, that kind of dynamic Mm -hmm. between parents and and, and their children? Mm -hmm. I hope readers get companionship. Mm. I think that's what I'm really, really after is just a sense of companionship, a feeling of closeness with the reader. Mm. And I do that through relationships and through interiors, you know, and this book I think is, it's like I'm getting closer and closer and closer as I write. 
but yeah, I would say it's companionship. It's seeing yourself. It's that sense of like a shared experience, yeah. you know, in the dark. Yeah, in terms of that interiority, um, the book is called Daughter. Um, in the book, Paul writes this famous book called Daughter. Maybe it's a great book. What mm-hmm. does this book in the book mean for father and daughter? I think it means that he, you know, used Mona as a muse and in life treats her poorly. Mm. So I think it's like looking at the dissonance there as much as there's like huge amounts of charm and charisma in Paul and in Mona too. And again, huge doses of love in the relationship. You know, I think truly my novel is about just the reclamation of that role and of that of that word in all of its meaning. Mm-hmm. So it's like that recapturing of the life of like the idea that making art for Mona is really making personhood. For sure. So when I think about Mona, I think of that kind of dynamic between like parenting as being a steward in terms of mm-hmm. like you're developing mm-hmm. someone to be the best person they can be versus that ownership in terms of I made mm-hmm. you, <laughs> I create mm-hmm. you, I will control you. I think Paul has a very big hold on Mona mm-hmm. and very controlling. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is Mona looking for from a father, from her father? Mm. I mean, I think it's unconditional love. Like mm. I love that idea of like stewardship versus ownership. Yeah. She's looking for a steward. She's looking for a protector. She's looking for someone who sees her for who she is. She's certainly imperfect. She's certainly dimensional. She's sensuous. She's dark. She's funny. She's There's something like inscrutable about Mona. I think she's looking to be seen, truly. Yeah. And instead what she gets is someone who, yeah, wants to possess her. He wants to possess her ideas. He wants to own her lines. He wants to own her mind in so many ways. There's a moment in the novel where he admits to wanting to bottle her like a perfume. You know, it's quite unfatherly. Mm, Indeed. (laughs) So uh, the themes and the motifs of Shakespeare run Mm. prominently in this book. Um, You reference Shakespeare quite often. Mona's sister is named Juliet. Mm -hmm. Mona's portrayal as Ophelia in the play Hamlet. King Lear Mm -hmm. looms large in this Mm -hmm. book. Was this intentional or how overt did you want this Shakespearean elements or motifs Mm -hmm. to kind of run throughout the book? It was intentional in the sense that I wanted to indicate scale. You know, I wanted to indicate timelessness. Mm. And at the same time, I wanted to indicate intimacy. You know, these are intimate relationships, Hamlet and Ophelia, King Lear and his three daughters. These are really the relationships that I'm examining in the novel. So they were definitely planted there deliberately. And motherhood plays a huge part in this book. Mona is, I don't want to give too much away in the book, but Mona Mm -hmm. is seeking a child, (laughs) Mm -hmm. seeking motherhood, seeking Mm -hmm. someone to love, someone to comfort. And I find that there's this interesting dynamic in terms of when you have a child, it's like you feel complete, but then you want to give that child their own agency and their own kind of, um, you don't want to own them. How does Mona see motherhood? That's such a beautiful question, like the idea that your child gives you completeness, but at the same time, you want them to experience agency. Um, Well, I think it's a mystery to her. Mm. I think it's a mystery, but I also see, you know, she's heavily influenced by her older sister, who is a mother, and she sees how motherhood affects her sister. And I think she wants that for herself, as abstract a concept as it remains. At the same time, I think she's drawn to it because it gives her a chance to rewrite the story, to rewrite the story of what it is to be 
a parent and a child. So the title of this book, Claudia, is Daughter. Um, You are a mother of, of two sons. What's your approach to parenting and how does it inform or shape how you wrote this book? My approach to motherhood is love. It's unconditional love. It's seeing my sons for who they are, allowing them their mystery and their agency, certainly practicing a lot of light magic, you know, a lot of like instilling belief, belief in them. Mm -hmm. But truly it's all like love-based. Right. So bringing that to the book, what do you think the parameters are between Mona and Paul? Like, um, is it like too much in terms of codependency? Mm. Um, How healthy is this relationship? It's, um, yeah, I really, with Mona and Paul, wanted to write the shadow side of a conventional relationship. Mm. So, no, it's not healthy. It has no boundaries. It's really like a coercive, an emotionally coercive relationship. And it's filled with manipulations, you know. And Mona, of course, mistakes her father's attentions to be love. Like, when we meet her, she is on this ascension path, and then suddenly Paul gets in touch and says that he needs to see her, and it's urgent, And she drops everything and she makes him the center, you know, and essentially becomes his confidant, his accomplice in an affair. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's very damaging and it's it's very uncomfortable. You know, it's uncomfortable (laughs) to write, but I truly I wanted to get as close to the fire as I could. So there's a line in the book, Claudia, it reads, to be loved by your father is to be loved by God. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great line that Amona writes mm-hmm. um, to open her play. Is that kind of love a blessing or a curse? Like what was your inspiration for the story? Mm. I think it's a curse mm. because I think you want to find your God outside of your parents. Parents are human beings. They can't be gods. It's too much to ask of them. They'll never fulfill that role. Um, because it's an impossible position. But I did want to indicate, of course, how mammoth Paul is in Mona's psyche and how she perceives her own outcomes. You know, so for her, she she's written this play, Margot, based on Margot Hemingway. And I was really attracted to all of these, like, iconic families that were kind of structured from tragedy, with these patriarchs that the family just structures themselves around. Claudia, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Such a pleasure to speak with you. That was Ryan B. Patrick in conversation with Claudia Day about her novel, Daughter. We are a couple of days away from the announcement of the winner of the 2023 Giller Prize. The gala takes place in Toronto, and it's always a splashy affair. Sometimes my tuxedo fits, sometimes it doesn't. But more importantly, there's a winner who leaves with $100,000 and the potential for many more readers. The event will be broadcast on CBC starting at 9 Eastern time. And our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick, has spent the past few weeks reading the books and talking with the nominated authors. He joins me now to give us a primer on the shortlisted books. Hello, Ryan. Ali. How are we doing? We are great. Can this, you feel it? Can I you, can feel. You feel? 
break into I woke up feeling it. The Giller Gala, I mean, there's often bets laid. We don't encourage gambling here, of course, at the next chapter. But, you know, it's a betting affair. People are wondering which author and what book will win. We won't do that today, or, or not on Fair the enough. air anyway. But I will start by asking you to go back to when that shortlist came out, and and what were your initial observations? Yeah, it, it's a it's exciting time of the year. It's Giller time, it's the thirtieth uh, year for the awards, and it's always such an exciting time for like book lovers and book nerds. I count myself in both categories. This list is very interesting. So you have Sarah Bernstein, Eleanor Catton, uh, Kevin Chong, Dion Irving, C.S. Richardson, and those are the five writers vying for the 2023 Scotiabank Giller Prize. Three of the shortlisted writers are from outside Canada. Um, Montreal-born Bernstein is now based in Scotland. Eleanor Catton is a Canadian. She was raised in New Zealand and now makes Cambridge her home. And the Toronto-raised Dion Irving now lives in Indiana. So you get this decidedly international flair. So the other two uh, are Vancouver writer Chong, who's nominated for the Double Life of Benson Yu. And then finally, last but not least, you have Toronto-based C.S. Richardson for All the Color in the World. Um, It's a very interesting year and an interesting time for the list. And uh, I think any book can win, and it's a pretty exciting time. So let's go through the books one by one. And again, no no favoritism here. We'll just do mm-hmm. it alphabetically. Right. We'll start with Sarah Bernstein and the book you mentioned, Study for Obedience. Yeah. Tell us about that. Uh, so Sarah Bernstein, Study for Obedience. This is a very slim book, but it's very packed with meaning within its pages. It's a very interesting story about a unnamed woman who travels to a, a remote community to... Um, be a housekeeper for her sibling. And the tone is very absurdist. There's some weird and strange things happen to the woman as she tries to make sense of her surroundings. A lot of dark humor involving the townspeople that she meets who are kind of scared of her. They're fearful of her. They can't really communicate the language. There's a language barrier there. It's very much about class, womanhood, and the power of language with this kind of dark and absurdist tone. It's very unsettling yet profound. And this list is very tricky. You don't know who's going to win, but this book is definitely a contender. You interviewed Sarah. She was great, very chatty, Mm. easy to talk to, uh, unlike seemingly the (laughs) protagonist in her book. And you mentioned she is like her in one way in the sense that she herself has gone to kind of a remote community in Scotland. How yes. did how did Sarah end up so in Scotland? So Sarah is originally from Montreal. Um, she tr- Now she resides in Scotland, the remote community, I'm going to pronounce the word, Akhiltabui. Maybe you can say it better than me. Akhiltabui? Akhiltabui. I mean, that's... Do my best Scottish accent. Um, she's an academic, so she tra- she lives there now. She teaches literature, 20th century um, literature and language. And she's very much fascinated about the nature of language, the, the power of language, the power of literature, uh, with a strong emphasis on literary experimentation. So uh, I think that really comes through in her book in terms of the idea of literary difficulty, in terms of all of its forms and uses. And it definitely comes through in this book. Right. The next person on the list is Eleanor Catton, who is, uh, mm. on the one hand, a, a, a talented young writer, but but does have a sizable reputation already. Can you give us a thumbnail on Eleanor Catton's writing career so far? Uh, I think Eleanor Catton might be the most recognizable name. Uh, she's based in the UK right now. Um, she won the she was the youngest Booker winner in 2013 um, for her book The Luminaries, which was a blockbuster book. So now she's back. It took her 10 years to write a new book, and she's been quoted as, as saying she felt a lot of pressure when she won the Booker mm-hmm. Prize in 2013. So it's part of the reason why she, it took her so long to write this follow up. So but follow up she did and this book is called Burnham Wood and it's on the Google shortlist. 
Tell us a little bit more about this book. It's set in New Zealand. Yes. So this book is set in New Zealand, and Burnham Wood is the title of the novel, and it takes its inspiration from the Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare play Macbeth. Um, it's a contemporary thriller. You have these guerrilla gardeners, <laughs> guerrilla kind of collective where they kind of plant um um, plant, they plant in lands that they're really not supposed to. And it's about the ethics of uh, private property, um, human psychology, and what it means to be human in a world that's kind of uh, awash with climate change. Hmm. Alphabetically, our third book is by Kevin Chong, The Double Life of Benson Yu. You talked with him earlier in the year yep. for the program. What kind of story does Kevin Chong tell in the novel? So The Double Life of Benson Yu, this is a really fascinating metafictional tale. It's about a middle-aged man named Benson who's writing a novel and the protagonist of his story kind of intrudes onto real life. And it's a really fascinating metafictional tale that really delves into toxic masculinity. It delves into the long-lasting arm of uh, abuse, childhood trauma. It sounds really confusing in terms of when you're looking at the narrative. It's, you have this young middle-aged um, Benson you who's writing the book, he finds himself face to face with a young uh, Benson Yu who's the star of the book <laughs> that he's writing. It all sounds confusing, but Kevin Chong definitely makes it all make sense. Kevin Chong, Vancouver writer, as you mentioned, he's written nonfiction uh, as well as novels. He's even done a book about the racehorse Northern Dancer. Mm -hmm. How did he see the themes in this book? When you spoke to him? When I spoke to him, he said this was the darkest book that he's ever written because it's so very personal. It's delving into childhood trauma and abuse and toxic masculinity, like I mentioned. So he originally wrote this as a straightforward novel, and then these metafictional elements kept intruding into his narrative. So he kind of rolled with it and kind of wrote, uh, wrote the book, and this is what came out of it. Book number four on the list is The Islands by Dion Irving, and she's another expat Canadian. Mm. These stories are all about Jamaican women in the diaspora. What is her connection to this subject matter? Uh, so Dion Irving is a Jamaican-Canadian woman. She, she was raised in Toronto and now lives in the United States. And with this book, The Island, she wanted to explore that feeling of um, diaspora, that feel of, feeling of isolation, particularly um, immigrants from the Caribbean or, or Jamaica, where they go all over the world, whether it be Canada or the UK or what have you. And that feeling of feeling disconnected, particularly when you're a woman, uh, you're a woman and you're black. So she kind of explores that in, in the context of people want to put you in a box and you want to break out of it. So that's what this um, collection of stories is all about. The fans of Canadian literature will will, will note this. I, I'm sure that the Giller Prize has always given short stories their due. How did uh, how did that island the, the islands read for you? Well, um, I really love the power of the short story genre, and I think Dion Irving really nails it. It's about the macro and the micro, and she really kind of connects it with this theme of diaspora and belonging. And each story, she kind of zooms in into a character in a certain situation, and then she kind of zooms out with this kind of gut punch at the end, and you got explores the overarching theme. So, And she really named, nails that genre, and I think that's why that's one of the books on the shortlist. The final book we're going to talk about today that is on this Giller shortlist is All the Color in the World by C.S. Richardson. What story does he tell in this novel? This is a very unique book. I think it's, it's very experimental in scope. I think if you saw it in the bookstore, you might be compelled to put it back, um, but you'd be wrong if you did that. It's it's 120 chapters. It's very short chapters. It's got kind of like a sketchbook. It's uh, fiction mixed in with nonfiction digressions about looking at art, art history, in the context of trauma and the power of the human spirit. You describe it as a sketchbook, which is 
completely on brand for C.S. Richardson, an award-winning designer of book covers, and as well a novelist. Uh, how does that art background that he has mm. work his way into uh, into all the color in the world? So Richardson, he spent like 40 years in the publishing industry as a book designer and graphic designer. He's um, worked on over 2,000 uh, book covers, Michael Crummy's Galore, Kim Tui's Rue, um, Graham Gibson's The Bedside Book of Birds, those iconic covers he had a part in. So his love of art, love of creation, his love of art history really comes through in his own work, in his own novel. So it's a really uh, compelling look at how color shapes our world and the, and the people around us. When you look at all five of these books, do you see any connective tissue or ways mm. that they all relate to each other? This is me like putting on my <laughs> Canada Reads hat. Yeah. What's, what's yeah. our theme this year? I know there's no theme, but is there something mm. that you see? Um... I think at a glance, there's nothing really connecting all these five books in terms of connective tissue. But when you look a bit closer, it's all about the craft. These are all five seasoned writers. The books on display on the shortlist, they all represent a high level of craft combined with a very distinct point of view. So, And all five of the, of the books, like I mentioned, that come with seasoned authors. I think there was a very concerted effort from the jury this year to kind of think deeply about the power of literature. Not that past juries didn't do that, but I think this jury in particular really zeroed in on that concept in terms of elevating craft and elevating genre. So let's talk about this jury a little bit. Ian Williams is the chair, and and Mm -hmm. people will know that he won. He's a past Giller winner for reproduction. The prize list reflects the people who are on the jury. Um, So do you have any observations on this jury in general? As you mentioned, Ali, so Ian Williams, who won um, the Giller Prize for reproduction, Production, his novel. He's a uh, Canadian poet and fiction writer. He chairs the five-person jury this year. Joining him are Canadian authors Sharon Bala, uh, Brian Thomas Isaac, and international authors uh, Rebecca Mackay and Neil Murkaji. So uh, publishers um, submitted 145 books for consideration, which was narrowed down, of course, to like a 12-book shortlist. And then you have this five-book um, shortlist. So uh, when William spoke to CBC Books, he said these books kind of uh, reflected the messiness of the world. And I I think what that means is this book goes back to my earlier point. It's all about literature, uh, capital L literature, even literature, if you Mm -hmm. want to use Mm -hmm. the British word. Uh, I think even Sharon Bala, she noted that all five titles are examples of excellence in craft. So when you read between the lines, it's all about finding titles created by writers who are seasoned, who are kind of focused on their craft, and who have something to say and have the literary chops to carry it off. Feels like it's anybody's giller to win at this point. So we'll have to tune in to see who takes home the big prize. And the interviews that you did with the shortlisted authors are on our website, cbc.ca slash the next chapter. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Ellie. Our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick, was talking about the five books on the shortlist for the 2023 Giller Prize. The prize gala will be broadcast on CBC on Monday, November 13th at 9 Eastern time. That is it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews and Trevor Carter. And thanks this week to Laura Antonelli, Olivia Pascorelli, Barb Carey, Juliana Romanek, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, Marina Endicott will join me to talk about her novel, The Observer. It draws on her personal experience as an RCMP spouse in a small town in the 90s, and it's a haunting portrait of what it means to serve and protect. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.